Emma's standing at the counter checking out a book in the middle school library when she sneezes really loudly, three times in a row. Jared, a 10th grader, walks into the lunchroom, hustles through the line, and on his way to the table, his bottled water teeters off his tray and hits the floor with a loud crack. You and I wouldn't actually think twice about either of these incidences, but to an adolescent who's trying to figure out and establish their own identity and desperately wants to fit in and be accepted by their peers, these seemingly insignificant happenings can send their brain into a tailspin of negative self-talk. Adolescence is stressful, period. Major changes occurring in the adolescent brain are to blame for much of it. Extreme emotionality, hyper-focused on what they look like, what they sound like, how other people see them. They feel like the whole world is watching, silently judging, and that they're the only kid on earth who feels this way. Every move they make is critical. Everything feels like a life-or-death situation. Add romance, sexual exploration, social media, pop culture, and academic pressures on top. It's a perfect mixture for lots of negative self-talk, self-doubt, even self-loathing. I'm Ann Coleman, and this week on Speaking of Teens, self-compassion, what it is and why teens and tweens can benefit so much by practicing it. When Karen was a senior in high school, she had to choose a topic for her independent study project in English by the next day, but still had no idea what she was going to write about. And I was driving down the road, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw this sign that said Transcendental Meditation. Now, this was 1975, I think, and... um, I remembered that in my social studies class, we had talked about meditation. We had talked uh, something about Zen, and that had been interesting to me. So I turned in um, where the sign said Transcendental Meditation and went inside and picked up some brochures and talked to them a little bit and then came back that Saturday. They told me, come back with flowers and fruit. (laughs) <laughs> which I thought, I was like, ooh, what are they going to do with that, you know? And um, so that's what I did. I came back with flowers and fruit on that Saturday a few days later, and I had my initiation, and they gave me my mantra, and I was a senior in high school. Karen wrote her paper on transcendental meditation and began what would turn out to be a lifelong journey. She practiced meditation weekly with different types of meditation groups, took meditation retreats, and sometime in the 90s, members of her meditation group began passing around a cassette tape of the British poet David White, reading poems about self-compassion. Karen, by now a mother of two young children, began listening to this poetry while driving them around to get them to nap, and the work of Mary Oliver in particular really resonated with her. Her poem called Wild Geese, and it starts out with the sentence, you do not have to be good. You do not have to crawl on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. And that just really spoke to me. You do not have to be good. 
you do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. You know, because I think like so many of us in our lives, in our culture, in this culture, um, we push ourselves and we beat ourselves up and we're, um, you know, aspiring to be perfect. At the University of North Carolina, Dr. Karen Bluth conducts research on self-compassion and how it influences adolescents' emotional well-being. Dr. Bluth has practiced mindfulness for over 40 years. She's a certified instructor of mindful self-compassion and co-creator of the curriculum Mindful Self-Compassion for Teens. Dr. Bluth, it's great to have you here. I'd love for you to take your time first and just explain to us what self-compassion is. Thank you so much for having me here. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, I, there are a couple of different ways that I can explain self-compassion. The easiest way really is what I call the informal definition of self-compassion, which is when you're struggling, treating yourself with the same kindness and the same support as you, as you treat your good friends when they're having a hard time. So in general, most of us, 80% of us are much kinder to our good friends when they're struggling than we are to ourselves. We tend to be particularly hard on ourselves. We tend to uh, beat ourselves up, tell ourselves we could have done better. Um, we can even say nasty words to ourselves. But um, and, we're, and we're much kinder to others than we are to ourselves. So self-compassion is learning how to give yourself the same kindness, the same support, the same tenderness um, that that um, we give our loved ones. The more formal definition of self-compassion is um, defined by three different components. And this is Kristen Neff's uh, definition. And she is a pioneer of uh, everything having to do with self-compassion. Uh, and the three different components are mindfulness, common humanity, and self-kindness. So mindfulness in this context is having a balanced perspective. So when something difficult happens to you and you're struggling, recognizing that this doesn't mean it's the end of the world, uh, and this is something that we all tend to do, right? When something hard happens, we say to ourselves, oh, this is, you know, uh, this is going to last forever. This is, you know, this was so dumb. This was so stupid. Um, you know, how am I ever going to get out of this? We don't seem to recognize that this too will pass. Although we know that intellectually in our hearts, we don't live that. The opposite of uh, mindfulness or the other extreme, the other side of the coin is uh, over-identification. And over-identification is spinning out. 
you know, over-exaggerating, catastrophizing, um, which is really what we tend to do. The second component is common humanity. And common humanity is the understanding that these difficult emotions that we're experiencing are part of being human. They, uh, whether it's anger or hurt or loneliness, grief, depression, sadness, what have you, um, this is part of being human. And we all experience these emotions from time to time. Again, this sounds obvious, um, because of course, intellectually, we know this, but in uh, when we're actually in the situation where we're struggling, we tend to forget and we tend to look around and think, oh, everybody's doing, you know, so much better than me. All these people don't have the same kind of struggles that I have. Look down the hall, you know, my colleague down the hall, they're not having a hard time, you know. So um, we tend to isolate ourselves. We tend to feel very alone. We tend to feel very lonely and uh, we forget. This is also uh, fed by the media and our culture that says that we're supposed to be happy all the time. And if we're not happy all the time, we must be doing something wrong. There must, or there must be something wrong with us, right? Of course, that's not true, that ups and downs are part of life. We know that, and um, but we tend to forget. We tend to forget that... Um, yeah, that experiencing these difficult emotions are just part of being human. And then the last component of self-compassion is self-kindness. Self-kindness is taking an active step step to say something to yourself or to do something for yourself that's supportive. And this could be something really simple like um, going for a walk, making yourself a cup of tea, taking a nap. That's what we call behavioral self-compassion. Or it can be as simple as just saying some kind words to yourself, the kind of words you might say to a good friend. We teach um, uh, what we call soothing touch or comforting gestures, which is just, you know, maybe putting a hand on your heart or, or uh, stroking your cheek, cradling your face in your hands, whatever is comforting to you. And these are things that you can do on the spot when you're struggling. The opposite extreme or the other side of self of self-kindness is self-criticism or self-judgment. And that's where we all tend to go. We tend to be extremely critical of ourselves and hard on ourselves and say things, nasty things to ourselves that we would never, ever say to anybody else. Right. So, um, yeah, those are the three components of more formal definition of, of self-compassion, three components. I heard you on another podcast, I believe it was, talking about oxytocin and how like self-touch or being kind to ourselves can actually release oxytocin in the brain. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What, what oxytocin actually is, what it does in the brain and body and how that works when you're being kind to yourself? Yeah, so we know from a couple of research studies that when you um, engage in something like comforting gestures, supportive touch, putting your hand on your heart, um, or uh, crossing your arms, giving yourself a hug, that there is a release of um, oxytocin, which is the feel-good hormone. So it is a kind of hormone, um, and um, and it's the it's released when a mother is nursing her child. 
and the mother feels relaxed, feels good. The you know baby is relaxed. The baby often goes to sleep, right? And so um, it's called. Sometimes it's called the um, just the feel good hormone or the the snuggle hormone. Mm-hmm. Um, it's released when we uh, do things that come very naturally to us, like you know, um, we think nothing of giving our friend a hug if our friend's having a hard time or. Or we even do it with our pets. You know, we'll pick up our pet and stroke our, you know, if we're feeling badly, we might, you know, pick up our cat, stroke our cat, stroke our dog. Feels good for the animal, feels good for us. So these are things that we naturally do through our lives um, that um, at to- from time to time release oxytocin. And um, yeah, makes us feel good. Okay. Tell me about the common humanity piece and how that fits in with adolescents and um, what it is that speaks to them about this common humanity and how that helps them. Hey there, real quick, I want you to know about something that if you're anything like me, an anxious ADHD overthinker, you may really need. It's my free guide, Emotional Awareness Strategies. Being emotionally aware is the key to managing your emotions with your kids or anyone else. Inside, I talk to you about the common thinking traps, being able to differentiate between your emotions, and the importance of mindfulness. If you're a yeller, lecturer, crier, or punisher, you need this guide. The link is at the very bottom of the episode description where you're listening. Back to the show. So adolescents feel very alone a lot of the time. I'm just this, making this very general statement, um, but it's true. And when we do exercises in our self-compassion programs that um, where they can recognize the common humanity, where they recognize that other teens are experiencing the same kinds of difficult emotions that they are, it's incredibly eye-opening for them. I mean, you can practically see their eyes widen, you know, it's, we do this one practice where we uh, put down a rope and we have everybody on one side of the rope and we tell them, okay, cross, cross the rope, cross the line. If you have ever been bullied, Right, and everybody goes over to the other side of the line. And then cross the line if you have ever struggled with your parents, you know, or cross the line if you have ever um, uh, experienced uh, or ever felt alone, or if you've ever been rejected from a group, or if you've ever compared your body image to that of a friend's. And it's inc- and they they're just astonished, really astonished for the most part to see that, wow, other people experience this. I'm not the only one, you know. And it it seems kind of obvious to us as adults. It's like, of course, we know this about adolescents, right? But they don't. And I remember being an adolescent, and I remember thinking, I'm the only one that feels insecure. Everybody else, look at them. They feel there's. You know, they're so secure. I can see that they're, you know, but it's, right. you know, it, it's, um, it's not true. I mean, they, they don't realize 
that what they're experiencing other teens experience as well. Right. And, you know, I can remember feeling that way all the way through my late 20s. I remember feeling that way in law school and thinking everybody else knows what they're doing and everybody else has got their, you know, stuff together. And I don't. I'm the only one. But, you know, teenagers, I think that's where they are in their head. They're thinking that they're on stage, that everybody's looking at them, that everybody's talking about them. Everybody's judging them. They're constantly embarrassed about everything. And so getting to the core of this and learning that, oh my gosh, everybody else is in the same boat I am, even the popular pretty girl. And, you know, everybody feels that way. Is that the, is that what they end up realizing then? Um, yeah, yeah, they do. Um, and they, and it comes through in these different kinds of practices that we do. I've been asked to do, to teach, uh, teens one-on-one and I won't do it for that reason because I think they get so much out of the common humanity piece. Right. And in being in there with everyone else saying, yes, I feel the same way. Yeah. So true. Um, so in the mindfulness, I know you said mindfulness in this context is a little different than what we think of as mindfulness, maybe just overall. Um, so I was reading something about, okay, and you said this about having a balanced perspective. So can you explain that a little bit more like mindfulness in the moment and having a balanced perspective? What does that mean exactly in this context? Yeah. So mindfulness, um, in outside of the self-compassion context is having a, having, um, just being aware of what's coming up in the moment, being aware of your emotions, what emotions are arising in you from moment to moment, from moment to moment, being aware of thoughts that are coming up from moment to moment, from uh, noticing physical sensations that you're experiencing, noticing what's going on around you. So it's not being in your head, but noticing what you are noticing what's coming up. Um, In the context of the definition of self-compassion, it is that, but it's also having this balanced perspective because you're aware of what's going on from moment to moment. You have a balanced perspective and you understand that what's happening in this moment is not necessarily what's going to happen 10 minutes from now or tomorrow or next year okay so it's it's understanding that this is what's here right now and it's not um taking it 20 steps further down the road saying this means because i'm experiencing loneliness now that means i'm gonna always experience loneliness and i'm never gonna have any friends and i'm gonna end up alone for the rest of my life and i'm never gonna have a partner and just so that's not the balanced perspective. Right. Spinning out and taking it Spinning all the way out, to the future. Right. And okay, I gotcha. So there's a lot of talk now on the internet, all over the place and on Instagram about self-care. So do people get this, this terminology confused with self-compassion? And, or what are the common misconceptions that you see or hear about when people hear the term self-compassion? Yeah, well, it's different from self-care in that self-care, which is also good, by the way, is doing active things for yourself, like eating well, exercising, going for walks, um, etc. right? Um, 
self-compassion that can, that can be part of self-compassion, but self-compassion is also in the moment when you're experiencing struggle doing something for yourself, recognizing it, recognizing what you're feeling, and then taking an active step to do something, like saying some kind words to yourself. Some of the misconceptions that people have about self-compassion, I'm glad you're asking me this because this is something that we always address because people do have misconceptions, is that self-compassion is soft or that you're not going to be motivated or that it's selfish or self-pitying or self-indulgent. And what we know from the research is that those are misconceptions. They're not true. So, for example, one of the most common misconceptions is that uh, people who are self-compassion lack motivation. Research studies show the opposite, that people who are self-compassionate are actually more motivated to take on um, new, try new things, to embrace new experiences, to work hard at something, to address their transgressions, uh, because they know that if they fail at this new thing that they're going to take on, they're not going to beat themselves up, you know, that they'll look at it and they'll have a balanced perspective and they'll say, well, you know, maybe that wasn't um, my best effort, perhaps, maybe I need to try harder or maybe I need to try a different way or maybe I need to try something different. But it doesn't mean that I'm a failure. Right. It means that this particular thing didn't go well for me this time. So it's not, um, there isn't as much fear of failure. So, and what a great thing for adolescents, because I think that's where most of them are, at least it's where I was in my head. I'd never tried out for sports teams, never did anything for that very reason. I was afraid of failing and I didn't want to look stupid. I didn't want to make a mistake. So that's Mm -hmm. such, it seems like such an important piece of this for adolescents to learn, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, and we know that from actually one study that we did with adolescents. It was one of uh, the studies that came out of our team was that uh, teens who are more self-compassionate will more readily uh, take on new experiences and embrace uh, embrace things that may be difficult for them and try them out. Positive risks instead of the negative risks. Positive risks, yes. Yeah. Positive risks. So tell me a little bit more about your research then. Let's let's go down that road. Tell us about your research, what you guys have found um, regarding adolescence and self-compassion. Well, I can generalize my research with um, the other research on teens and self-compassion. There's been a lot coming out recently. And what we know pretty unequivocally from a lot of studies at this point is that People, teens who are more self-compassionate have less anxiety, depression, and stress across the board. We also know that self-compassion is protective and buffers against some of the challenges that teens face in today's world, like cyberbullying is one of them. Uh, We know, for example, that Teens who are more self-compassionate are less likely to self-injure when they're depressed. We know that teens, as they get older, um, particularly teen girls, tend to become more depressed, but that self-compassion is a protective factor against that. 
So um, it's a protective factor against a lot of uh, the challenges and difficulties that teens face. Right. And I think I read, um, I think you had two different studies where one, you guys had taken um, middle schoolers and high schoolers. I think the middle schoolers were from a private school, the high schoolers were from a public school. And then to, um, and then the next study you did, you took them all from the public school to make sure those findings were correct. That, um, mm-hmm. tell me about that, about what you found about particularly the middle school and high school girls and the depression rates and that kind of thing. Yeah, that was really interesting. What we found was that there was a difference between depression rates of girls um, and self-compassion rates of girls between middle school and high school. And and depression rates are um, something that we've known for a long time, that girls tend to become more depressed as they proceed through adolescence. Uh, There's a lot of theories on that, but um, that we, we knew. But what was interesting was that their self-compassion also um, was lower in high school than um, in middle school. And this wasn't true for the boys. So the boys' rates pretty much stayed the same, but that girls' self-compassion levels decreased from middle school to high school. Do you have any theories on why that might be? Well, you know, it does... does, mirror the evidence that we see with depression. Um, You know, I don't specifically have, I mean, there's a lot of theories out there. Some of it is hormonal, hormonal based. Some of it is um, social based. Um, The idea that um, girls feel like they're, um, not as acceptable if they are, if they show how smart they are, or um, if they engage more with um, academics. You know, it's hard. I, I'm I'm struggling with this because I can't believe this is you know 2023. <laughs> We're right. still talking about right. this, right? Right. But there, um, that's not. So much the focus of my study, although right. I'm fascinated with it. Yeah, I'm. I'm so interested in why, um, why this is happening and why it's still happening. And I do have a colleague at UNC who's working in this line of research, and you know, uh, is, her work is just so interesting to All me. Right. Well, we we did a. Um, I say we. I guess I did an episode not too long ago about. Um, girls and dating and rape culture and that kind of thing. And um, I think I may have read just um, a little bit somewhere, maybe in one of your studies that mentioned, but, you know, girls realizing that what they're up against in the world and what they're up against in the, you know, in a man's world and the misogyny that they face and the, um, you know, harassment, sexual harassment, because that obviously that does increase in high school and we've seen the numbers on that. So, mm-hmm. um, so it, it seems that teaching self-compassion, especially to young girls and getting that in them at a young age so that it can maybe carry them through high school. And when they're learning all these things, I mean, it, it seems like such a great thing. Um, and, and the other day I had, um, I had someone reach out to me, actually, it was just yesterday, DM'd me about um, um, her daughter that had attempted suicide. 
And I, I think I read that self-compassion is possibly a very good buffer for suicidality. Is that is that right? So we're starting to see this. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in our most recent study that we published uh, was with transgender and gender diverse teens. And, and we didn't measure suicidality precisely, directly. We measured two factors that are associated with suicidal ideation. And those factors are perceived burdensomeness and thwarted belongingness. So perceived burdensomeness is feeling like you're a burden to others, um, your friends and family. Thwarted belongingness is um, feeling like you're making attempts to belong and be accepted and not making it and feeling rejected. When those two are present, usually you see suicidal ideation. So what we found in this study where we taught these teens our self-compassion program over um, eight different sessions, we found that the both of these decreased significantly from before the this before the first session began to um, three months after. Wow. In the current study that we have going on, we are measuring measuring suicidal ideation directly, along with these other two factors. And this is also with gender diverse and transgender kids. And um, so we don't have the results of that yet. We're, the study is ongoing, but um, hopefully we'll have more results in the next six months or a year or so. Right. You know, I started out studying all this stuff two, three years ago. I started out in um, looking at emotional uh, regulation, emotional awareness, emotional intelligence. And and then I, as I studied and studied more, I learned that, well, mindfulness is really kind of the key to emotional awareness, which is the key to emotional regulation, which is the key to emotional intelligence. But after learning more about self-compassion, now I'm kind of seeing that that even goes further back and maybe um, it, it seems to me that it's kind of the baseline, the, the root of everything, that if these adolescents learn self-compassion, then they, they will become more aware of their emotions. They will become more emotionally regulated. And it, it, I mean, it, am I on the right path there? Yeah. And I, I mean, mindfulness is, you know, I don't want to put mindfulness aside because um, for lots of reasons, but one of which is that mindfulness is the foundation of self-compassion because you have to be aware of what you are feeling and what you're experiencing in order to give yourself compassion. Right. right. So, um, and mindfulness is very grounding and very regulating. Um, but self-compassion, I, I do think, is really key in that it's, um, you're not beating yourself up. You're not, um, you're letting yourself off the hook for not being perfect. Right. You know, you're not letting yourself off the hook completely. You know, you have to, um, fess up when you've made mistakes or when you've, you know, uh, hurt someone, of course. But, um, but it teaches you that, you know, it's okay not to be perfect. And not only that, but you can't be perfect. You're human. You will never be perfect. Right. And so don't expect yourself to be. 
Yeah. And, you know, all these kids now who are striving for, um, you know, taking all AP classes and taking, you know, doing doing all the stuff they can to um, pad their college resume, they're under so much pressure and they are trying to be perfect. And, and they're, I, you know, some of it may be parents, but a lot of it, I think they bring on themselves because of the competitive environment um, and because I think of what they hear at school and what they hear from counselors and that kind of thing. So self-compassion, um, it, it seems like something that is almost necessary for kids to learn early and then carry it on through into their adult life, right? Yeah, there's so much pressure on kids today from so many different places. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking. I get emails all the time, you know, from parents who's, you know, like the one person who DM'd you yesterday all the time. And it's heartbreaking, you know, um, and te- teens and preteens and younger kids don't have the tools, don't have the coping uh, tools yet to deal with these kinds of pressures the way we develop through life, you know, and we do as hopefully as we grow and as we become older. Um, yeah, there's so, there's so much, there's so much pressure from so many different places and um, school being one of them. You know, I remember when my daughter was taking registering for AP classes, both her dad and I were saying, you do not need to take so many classes. Right. You don't have to do that. Just pick one or two, you know? But of course her attitude was like, you know, you don't get it. <laughs> you, you don't understand. <laughs> you, know, you don't get it. You don't understand. And, you know, she took many, many AP classes. I don't remember how many, but then of course, when she got to college, she said, you know, you were right. I didn't need all those AP classes. Right. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about the, um, the course, the Mindful Self-Compassion for Teens, the program, because I think um, I, I found this months and months ago, um, a, a couple of years ago, actually, and it's always been in the back of my mind, and I've recommended it several times, and I've mentioned it in other podcasts, but um, I just think this is so important, and I know you guys have trained people all over the world to teach it in person as well, but please take us through um, a little bit about the the program and what you teach and how you teach it and how it's available for people. Yeah, so the the class is eight sessions long. Um, each class is an hour and a half. Um, it is taught, you know, pre-pandemic, it was only taught in person since the pandemic. Everything has changed. We're not teaching it online. Um, we've trained over 200 teachers internationally at this point. The classes are um, focused on developing tools and skills to be kind to yourself. So what this means are there's some specific tools, like I was talking about um, comforting gestures, putting your hand on your heart. That's one That's one that uh, teens tend to really like, or um, another comforting gesture. Uh, another one is listening mindfully to music soothing music. That's another one that really resonates with teens. And we teach them about the adolescent brain and how the adolescent brain is changing and why they feel. And that explains why they can feel very emotional during adolescence and why they can go from zero to a hundred in their emotional uh, um, level 
very quickly. And uh, yeah, we teach some mindful movement and there's art in every class, uh, some mindful art. And uh, yeah, so it's, uh, it's available um, through different ways. The Center for Mindful Self-Compassion is the organization that uh, trains teachers in the program and also um, so you can find out who is teaching what classes through them. And but it's also available online. Is that right? I mean, always. Well, teachers teach it online. Okay. Yeah, teachers teach it online. Okay. So, are they offered just at different times of the year, or people just have to log on to the um, the website and see when something's coming up and what they can take? Right. Okay. Right. Teachers, you know, all over the world teach it at different times, um, according to what works for them. And we, although. The class is for 11 to 18. We never have that age range in one class. So, you know, a teacher might be teaching 11 to 14-year-olds and then somebody else teaching 15 to 18-year-olds. Okay. Well, I'll be sure I'll have all of the links in the show notes because I want you guys to look into this. Um, I just feel like it's so, so important. And um, I think surely you could find a course online to take or to let your child take. And that's the other thing I wanted to ask you about. I know, you know, most of the kids that probably take this are nudged by their parents to take it and sign up for it. How, how do you see the change um, in their attitude after they, you know, come in the first day and then they figure out, well, maybe this isn't so bad. It's so funny. Um, So many kids have said to me at the end of the class, you know, they pull me aside and they say, you know, this wasn't my idea. This was really my parents' idea, and I didn't think I was going to like it. But it's really good. I really like it. So, you know, yeah, so many kids have said that to me. And, um, yeah, and it's, yeah, it's really, um, it's really wonderful seeing the difference that it makes for kids. Can you think of a a particular child or a particular circumstance where it made a big difference or where, um, you know, you saw, you could really see something happening? Well, there's one that stands out to me, and um, this is a 15-year-old boy who was taking it for the, I think this was his second, I know he took it twice, I don't remember whether he said this in the first time, the first class or the second class, but we were all just sitting around, and I think the reason I remembered it was because it was quiet for a moment, and then he said, you know, I don't care if people don't like me, because I like me. (laughs) That is wonderful. And all of us and all of us kind of look at each other like, oh wow, that's so cool. That is wonderful. You know, I I think some kids must be born with that. My stepdaughter was born with that. She wore glasses when she was tight from the time she was tiny. And I can remember asking her, you know, does anybody ever make fun of you? Or do you ever, you know, feel funny about it or anything? And she's like, no, it's just me. They just like me for me. And I thought, God, how wonderful to just have that, you know, because I was exactly the opposite. Everything about me, I was worried that somebody thought, you know, something negative um so you know kids get that just after eight classes or so I mean they really kind of internalize that I think you've done you know follow-up studies you know weeks and weeks afterwards right and seeing that it sticks yeah so we have done um a three-month follow-up um yeah and 
And I would guess, I mean, we haven't, we still need to do a lot more follow-up studies. I don't want to make it sound like, you know, we've done all these follow-up studies and, you know, that it, that it works, you know, five years down the road. But um, my guess is that, um, that the more people, the more the teens practice and the more they um, do these, these tools, use these tools that we're offering, that we teach them, the more that they'll remember. Right. You know, um, yeah. So that would be my, I mean, we don't know that from research, but right. um, generally across research, across mindfulness research and, and so another, a lot, a lot of different kind of research um, involving different practices. We know that you have to continue to practice. Right. Well, and, and the mindfulness piece just specifically, um, because I just, so believe in that and I don't have a mindfulness practice per se but just me learning what mindfulness was and that you actually could be in the present moment without thinking about other stuff was kind of mind-boggling I think some of us are so um emotionally unaware that just learning a little bit about this stuff actually brings awareness. And, and that's something I don't think that that dissipates over time. I mean, once you understand something and know it, it's, you know, it's within you. So it seems to me that learning these things, it, it is something that will, you know, carry them through at least a little bit. I think that you, you learn to kind of dig back when you have to and, and pull these things out. But um, just being aware of these things to me makes a huge difference. Yeah, that reminds me of something another student said to me at one point, which actually contradicts what I said before, but I'm going to share it anyway. <laughs> uh, he said, um, this is when we were first starting out. I was first starting out trying out different self-compassion practices. This was very beginning when we were first developing the program. And um, I think it maybe was a six-week class. And he said at the end of the six-week class, you know, I really haven't practiced much at home. In fact, I really haven't practiced at all. <laughs> but... But something about the way that I see my life has changed. Yeah. It's a perspective. You know, yeah. So that, you know, that's goes along with what you were saying that, that his, and then he went on to elaborate that something has, had shifted for him, a perspective shift that made him see that, you know, he, he, he doesn't have to be so hard on himself. Right. And it, like it's not as... Yeah, like, like, you know, we te we raise our kids with this message, and I don't, I don't mean like us individually as parents, but our culture, that you know, you have to push yourself, and you have to, um, and the way you push yourself is by beating yourself up, you know, and so to challenge that idea and say, you know what, uh, uh no, not necessarily. Right. And that perspective, once you have that perspective, it, it, you don't you don't just lose it. I, I just think that once you've seen certain things, you can't unsee it. So once you have that perspective, right. um, I, I don't think you really lose it. I mean, for me, at least just learning that I could tell what was going on in the moment and be in the moment 
and not think about what happened in the past and not worry about what's going to happen in the future. Just knowing that that's possible, Mm -hmm. you know, shifted something in my brain. Is there anything that a a parent could do um, regarding self-compassion with their teen? Do you think a teen would be open to a parent talking to them about this? Or is there any way a parent could explain this to their teen? Um, Maybe before they take a course that could help in any way? You know, I think it all depends on the parent and the teen and what their relationship is like, because from what I have seen, there is a huge variance in, and I'm sure you know this, I'm sure every parent knows this, um, the kind of relationship parents have with their teens. I think, um, yeah, I think, I, I think there's a huge variance But I think what a parent can do is to learn self-compassion for themselves. Right. And so first of all, they can support their child in um, when the child is learning self-compassion, but also um, for themselves, because having been down that road of having kids who are teens, my kids are now in their Oh my gosh, I was going to say late 20s. One of them's 30, <laughs> 28 and 30. Happened so fast. Yeah. But having been down that road, um, it's not easy, you know? <laughs> no kidding. It's not, e- it's not easy being the parent of teens. And you need that self-compassion for yourself. Right. I mean, it's rough. It's hard, you know? And at least it was for me. It was very hard. And... Um, so I so when you're actively doing self-compassion practices, um, you are much less likely to act act out, meaning get emotional, emotive, you know, have your emotions all over the place. You are um, you're much steadier, and really, that's what teens need. One psychologist once said to me. Teens want their parents to be like furniture. They want them to be stable. They want them to be there. Um, but they don't want them to interact with them in any way, right? I love that. Like furniture. Yeah. Perfect. Like furniture, yeah. but they don't want them to change, right. you know? But they want you to be steady right. and grounded, you know? And it's much easier to be steady and grounded if your own resources are met. You know, if you have... Um, you know, if you're exhausted and you're stressed out, it's going to be a lot harder for you to be steady than if your um, if your resources, you know, if your resources are filled and you're grounded and you're ready to engage. Exactly. Now, so and there are courses for adults, obviously, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, and and again, I'll have all those links. And also, I think we absolutely need to mention your um, your book and your workbook because this is also something that parents could actually do is they can just purchase the book and kind of maybe casually leave it on the coffee table for the kid to walk by and go, huh, okay, maybe I'll try that because you know if you hand it to them, maybe it's not going to happen. Um, so tell us about your your books and, and, and the um, Audible book also, please. Yes, yes. So so I have three books. One is the workbook, Self-Compassion Workbook for Teens. 
Um, there's another, for, which is the self-compassionate teen. And that's not a workbook. It's, you know, for a different kind of teen who just likes to read. Mm-hmm. And then there's one for kids with ADHD, teens with ADHD, oh, which I did with um, my uh, with a colleague Wonderful. who is an ADHD expert. Oh, wow. Uh, so there are those three books, and then the Audible is, I believe, free. Audible is offering it for free for anybody who has an Audible account. And it's for um, parents, teachers, and coaches um, who work with teen girls. Karen Bluth has spent her life in the pursuit of mindfulness. We've been talking to her today about her research on adolescent self-compassion at UNC, her contribution to the Mindful Self-Compassion for Teens program, and her books for adolescents and the significant adults in their lives. Dr. Bluth, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about self-compassion and how vital it is um, to our adolescents' mental health and well-being. We will have all the information where you can find um, Dr. Bluth's research, where you can find her books, the Mindful Self-Compassion Program for Teens, and all the other courses. Um, first of all, I will tell you that you can go to Karen Bluth, B-L-U-T-H dot com, but again, we'll have all the um all the links in the show notes at neuroagility.com forward slash 35. And I appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I don't think there's any doubt that self-compassion is something that we want to cultivate in our teens and tweens, particularly in our girls and LGBTQIA plus kids. Teens are more stressed than they've ever been, and studies have shown that kids that practice self-compassion are less stressed, have fewer depressive symptoms, are less anxious, are more resilient, have more gratitude, and are more motivated to take positive risks. That all sounds pretty good to me. Speaking of Teens is the official podcast of Neurogility.com, an organization I started to educate other moms and adolescents about emotional intelligence. Go to Neurogility.com forward slash here we go to find all of our free parenting guides and ebooks to help you learn more about your teen and how to parent them in a way that increases their emotional well-being and keeps them safe. You can go to Neurogility.com forward slash 35 for this episode's show notes and transcript. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll consider sharing it with someone who needs to hear it. You can reach out to me at a Coleman at neurogility.com or you can DM me at neurogility on Instagram. I'll be back on Tuesday with a new episode. Have a great week.